0: God is so good to us. Weak and broken children, He's been so kind to us. Let's, let's pray before we dive into His Word. Who am I, God? Who am I? And who are these people? Without you, we are nothing. Who are we to receive such blessings? to experience such fellowship, to have Your presence among us. Who are we, God, that we should get to smile so brightly that we should gaze upon the sun and experience His joy? Who are we, God, that we simple creatures would just delight in Your Word, speak, proclaim Your Word, And you would draw together a family of believers who love with supernatural love, who sing with voices of angels, who serve with the heart of our beloved servant. God, who am I, a preacher, to proclaim the oracles of God you said, "Let there be light, let there be land, let there be waters, and there was, and you put that word into my mouth, and I pray that it would go forth and do its work, as the light appeared as the waters separated, as man was formed from the dust of the ground. This word would go forth and waken hearts, would strengthen weary souls, would bring life to dead, beating, empty bones that would bring light into the darkness. Do so mightily right now through this simple, ordinary person. Amen. Hmm. How many of you, looking back on your life, can say your life has gone pretty much according to the plans you made as a little child? I guess the answer is no. Even in the last year, how many of you can say that this last year has gone as you expected it to? As smart and sophisticated as we think we are, as much as we in our culture think we've got this world figured out, we really have such little control over how our lives go. Just when we start to think that we've got this thing called life figured out, some order to it, God brings us some dramatic change that throws everything upside down. So if you're a parent of a newborn, you might think that you're finally starting to get a routine, some sleep down, and then suddenly your child drops a nap, or there's a growth spurt that comes out of nowhere, or my favorite thing to blame, my child's misbehavior on, teething begins. (laughs) And everything goes out the window. Or perhaps your career finally seems to be going somewhere. You're excited and you have to sell off the company you started. Or the company you work for has a bunch of layoffs, including you. Your doctor tells you that those persistent headaches are due to a growing tumor in your head. Or the police call one night and ask you to come down to the station and meet your child there. This is not the life you had planned Nothing is going the way you had hoped. And in your mind, you're asking all these questions. God, why would you take away such things that I thought were so good for me? That made me so comfortable? When Jesus arrived on this earth, I'm sure some of the Jews had similar questions running through their heads. We saw in Matthew chapter 1 that Jesus is this long-awaited Jewish king born miraculously of a virgin in order to miraculously save his people. The Jews had a pretty good plan for what that arrival of their king would look like in their lives. But it didn't quite go according to their plan. I bet even Mary and Joseph had a pretty good plan for their own lives as well. Settle into a nice village life, build a home, start a carpentry business, grow a family and die in an old age Thankful to God for his daily mercies, but still longing for the Messiah to come. But as we have seen and we will see today, God has dramatically different plans. A plan that would include conflict, much suffering and difficulty. But trusting in God's promise, Joseph would lead his family faithfully, rather unremarkably, right down the path of God fulfilling every one of his promises. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 2 and look at verses 13 to 23 today and marvel together at how God works through all this chaos to faithfully keep his promises. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. Now when the wise men... Had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose, and took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he, had, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled by what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah. And took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I've titled this message, I usually don't talk about the title because I usually don't care much about the title, but I really thought a lot about this title this week. I've titled it The King's Spiritual Lineage. I was really wrestling with where, how this section fits with chapter 1, which we just came out of, and the early parts of chapter 2, which really emphasized Jesus is the King of Israel. We had a genealogy in chapter 1 that showed he's the rightful descendant of the king, David. And he challenges, a couple weeks ago we saw that he challenges Herod's reign on the throne in Judea as the king. And I was wondering, what's this sudden transition? We're in a new phase here. What is Matthew trying to tell us? And I think that he's explaining that this king is more than just a king. He fulfills every Old Testament anticipation of the Messiah. This spiritual lineage shows us how God keeps all of his promises for his people in Jesus. This spiritual lineage connects Jesus, roots Jesus deeply into every hope of the Old Testament. In chapters 1 and 2 of Matthew, Matthew uses these five Old Testament references To highlight important parts of the Messiah. To verify this is the one who satisfies all the prophetic expectations of the king. So in chapter 1 we saw he used Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 to speak of the miraculous virgin birth. And then in chapter 2 he references Micah 5 verse 2 to say where he was going to be born. Bethlehem. They expected him to arise in Bethlehem. And now we're going to see three more of these prophecies which root Jesus deeply in the history of Israel. So the outline of the message today is just going to follow along those three prophecies and see how each one of those is fulfilled by Christ and then relates to each one of us. First, we'll look at Hosea's prophecy here in verse 15 and ask what it means to be called the Son of God. And then... Move on to Jeremiah's prophecy in verse 18 concerning Rachel's weeping for her children. And then take a look at this obscure idea that Jesus would be born or called a Nazarene in verse 23. So let's look at that first section ending with Hosea's prophecy. So the wise men had just left. They came and brought all their gifts. They worshipped Jesus, bowed down before him, and in a dream... God had warned them, go back another way, because Herod is actually trying to kill this child. But because of this danger, the angel then also goes to Joseph and says, you need to get your family out of here. Someone is coming for you. And so they flee to Egypt. Can you imagine what an upheaval that is to your life? They had already, quite uncomfortably, had to leave Nazareth, and travel all the way to Bethlehem because of the census, as Luke tells us in his birth narrative. Traveled all that way, and when they get there, they arrive and suddenly they have to give birth to a baby, nowhere to keep them, so they put him in a manger, getting more uncomfortable by the day, and you have this whirlwind of visitors showing up, angels surrounding you, foreign dignitaries arriving, and local shepherds. Coming in to see this child as an introvert, i 'm thinking, "Leave me alone. I need some rest." <laughs> so they want to go home. i 'm assuming just I can 't wait till I get home, but an angel comes to him and says, "Bad news for you. Someone wants to kill you. Get out of here. Go to Egypt, at least another hundred fifty miles away, at that time in that place, more than a week 's journey away from home. Talk about throwing your life plans out the window. This is a dramatic detour. But as they're heading to Egypt, God has more in mind than simply saving the child's life. In verse 15, Matthew calls to mind this quote from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Out of Egypt I called my son. So, Strangely, Matthew tells us that the reason he's sending Jesus to Egypt is so he can bring him right back and say, you're my son. That's kind of strange. What is Matthew doing here? This is quite an interesting way to tell a story. Matthew is really painting a marvelous, marvelously intricate picture of who this Jesus is, of his spiritual lineage. So first we should go back to Hosea and ask ourselves, what is Hosea saying when he says, out of Egypt I call my son? What was Hosea doing with this text? Well, Hosea's letter was originally a call to Israel to come back to God. They have been unfaithful as Hosea uses his own life to portray As he he marries a prostitute who is continually unfaithful and he welcomes her back and she's unfaithful and he welcomes her back. That is Israel. And then he moves on later in the letter saying, using a different image of a father calling his son back. And he says, look guys, God says to Israel, I called you as my beloved son out of Egypt. I care for you. I love you. And if you would come to me, turn back to me, I would gladly run and welcome you back into my arms. Like that prodigal son that Jesus tells us about. So it sort of appears then, looking at the context of Hosea, that Matthew is kind of taking things out of context. Hosea wasn't at all looking forward to a coming Messiah when he said, out of Egypt I called my son. He was strictly looking back, saying, you guys, Israel, are God's son, and you've been unfaithful. But if we look at the theme of God's sons, what it means to be the God's son, we see that Matthew is really trying to broaden our understanding of God's glorious, redemptive plan. Early on in the Bible, right in the first couple chapters, we see God creates Adam, and Adam is a sort of son uniquely from God have this special relationship with God and he gets authority over all of God's land over all of God's property like an oldest son and yet Adam was unfaithful Adam was a disobedient prodigal and then hundreds of years later God calls Egypt out of Israel through the waters of the Red Sea they escape Pharaoh's punishment and they get through the waters and it symbolizes a birth coming through the parting of the Red Sea and being born as a new entity. The entire nation of Israel called God's son. And they were called to do what Adam had failed to do. To be the heirs of the promised land. To represent God before all the nations. But The rest of the Old Testament tells us how unfaithful they too were. They carried the same disobedience that Adam did. But now Matthew seems to be taking us back into this story again, saying, telling us all over, but with a new person cast as the Son of God. Here's another person born who has authority, all authority over God's land. He's the king. He has a special relationship with God, being born of the Holy Spirit. And now he's being called out of Egypt. This should finally click in the Jews' mind. He's the new Israel. He is the new Adam, the son who will be faithful to what they could not do. And we saw in chapter 1 of Matthew, that part of what this faithful son coming out of exile is called to do, He's going to bring with him many brothers. He's going to draw his brothers out of exile into the promised land. So the New Testament speaks of all of the believers in Christ as sons of God, children of God because of the faithful son of God. Adam was called to be faithful. He couldn't do it. Israel was called to be a faithful son and couldn't do it. But then Jesus now arrives to be the faithful one and all who put their hope in him can be faithful, beloved sons of God as well. You would think that would come with all kinds of blessing and joy all the time. But then in the next section, Matthew continues to draw out the imagery of Israel and Egypt with the story of great suffering Starting in verse 14, we see that Herod's great plan for keeping his throne to himself is to kill every baby boy up to two years old in Bethlehem and in the area surrounding it. Bethlehem was probably a village, a town of about a thousand people. So there was probably a couple dozen baby boys that were slaughtered by Herod's jealous rage. And that just makes me wonder how foolish are we when we're so blinded by our pride and by our sin that he he could think he could wipe out God's promises by killing every baby boy did it did it not occur to him that maybe if this kid was born two years ago that his family moved or that they were out of town for the week but when whenever we're Blinded by our sin, we get tunnel vision on what we want to satisfy our own hearts. We completely make foolish decisions and justify ourselves with such wretched excuses. So here, Herod tries to prevent God's Redeemer from coming. Prevent God from fulfilling his promises by killing off all his potential rivals. Well, haven't, haven't we heard this story before? Yeah. This is the same story of Moses in the book of Exodus. God's people are suffering in their oppression under Pharaoh in the land of Egypt. And he promised, I'm going to raise up a young boy who will become a deliverer for you. And Pharaoh says, that ain't happening. I am keeping my people here, or those people. They are my slaves. So he also slaughters all the young boys except God miraculously redeemed, or preserves the Redeemer, the one who would bring them out of Egypt. So Matthew's using this imagery again to call to mind something powerful is happening here. Something like that time, but even bigger, more glorious, more faithful, more lasting, really. Because even right after Israel was rescued from Egypt, Immediately after they walk through a mountain of water on either side of them, they begin complaining. And they begin worshiping golden calves. They begin committing immorality. This redemption from Egypt didn't accomplish lasting faithfulness for Israel. And they were on this downward spiral for centuries until finally the king of Babylon one day, hundreds of years later, came along and wiped them out. Destroyed Jerusalem, took everybody out of Jerusalem into a foreign land. And this is where Jeremiah's quote comes in in verse 18. Jeremiah said, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. If you remember Rachel, you know that she did not live at the time of the Babylonian exile, at the same time as Jeremiah. Rachel was Jacob's wife, Jacob also known as Israel. So Rachel is the mother of Israel's children. At first she cried because she wasn't able to bear children. She was weeping desperately, God give me children. And finally he blessed her with an abundance of beautiful children. And she died happy. But then years later, centuries go by and her children are in rebellion against the God who blessed her so greatly. And now Rachel says, from beyond the grave she is weeping for you guys. Because you, you are being destroyed by unfaithfulness. And she can't stand the thought of seeing her children just walk away from God. She refuses to be comforted. I can't stand the bitterness. There's no hope. It just appears like God has abandoned us, turned his back on all his promises. But right after Jeremiah says that Rachel's weeping, he says, don't weep anymore. He makes this promise of the new covenant. God promises that he's going to bring his children back from unfaithfulness. Rachel thinks they are destroyed, but... Jeremiah says in chapter 31, verse 33, that he's going to give them a new covenant. He's going to bring his children back from the dead and put a new heart within them. One that will never go astray. One that will never fall away. It will know him deeply and personally. The Messiah is going to come and establish this new covenant in his own blood and wipe away all of Rachel's tears. So Jeremiah, or Matthew takes this Jeremiah quote, says, and applies it to this suffering, "Through this great suffering is going to come an even greater redemption for God's people." So just like the time of Israel's exile in Egypt and their later exile into Babylon, we can see that God will still be faithful to His promises though it seems like the world is falling apart and we can't understand what's happening, God's promises seem to be slipping away. We don't know what He's doing. He is working all things together for good for those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. Even Herod's murder of dozens of babies and Pharaoh's slaughter of Hebrew children, Nebuchadnezzar's destruction of of Jerusalem and taking people away from their families into exile. All of that is a part of God's faithfulness to bring the Redeemer who will one day shower eternal blessings and joy on His people in Christ. And so, with that hope, we move to the next section to find out more who this Jesus is. You can imagine that people experiencing such suffering, whether it's exile Inability to have children or children being taken away through such barbary. They're ready for God to send His Messiah and end the suffering already. Such oppression and desperation, crying out, God, how long? The psalmist says, how long will you wait? How long will you be patient? We are suffering here. And with that intensity, they're ready for the Messiah to show up and start cracking some heads. Destroying these enemies and making everything right. Matthew said Jesus is the king, right? Seems a rather kingly thing to do to show up and destroy the enemies. But the next prophecy suggests otherwise for this new king. Let's just jump right to this prophecy about Jesus being a Nazarene in verse 23. Matthew writes, he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So, unlike the other four prophecies that Matthew referenced, this one can actually be found nowhere in the Old Testament. So it seems like Matthew is again being a bit loose with prophecy, making stuff up to fit his own narrative. But if you look carefully, if you, you might see a little bit of change in how he introduces this prophecy. The previous four prophecies, he said, what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, one prophet, singular. And then in the Greek, you can't notice this, but he uses another word that indicates I'm quoting, I'm saying words, exact words or very close words from what the Old Testament prophet said. But here in verse 23, it says prophets, plural. And he doesn't use that same word to say quotation. He uses a different word that suggests this is kind of a summary idea from a bunch of prophets. So Matthew is trying to tell us that many prophets predicted this idea that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. Except we still have a problem. Because the town of Nazareth didn't even exist until right near the end of the Old Testament writing. There's not going to be a reference to Nazareth in the Old Testament because there was no such thing as Nazareth. Which really seems to be Matthew's point. Jesus would be a nobody. He would come from nowhere. He's just a regular Joe. And this is a theme that is common among the prophets. Isaiah 53 predicted that he would be just a regular guy. You look at him and go, you're nothing special. There's nothing great about you. You're not a mighty warrior king, redeemer. I'm not afraid of you. Psalm 22 prophesied that he would be mocked and scorned and rejected. We don't need him. He's not worthy for us to follow. He's not powerful. He can't do anything for us. Zechariah 9 says that this king is going to be humble, a peacemaker riding in on a donkey. Kings come riding into town on mighty steeds looking down at all their subjects. Or maybe a giant elephant to say, look how powerful I am. Get out of my way or you'll be squashed. But Jesus comes on a donkey. This little thing that's barely this tall. He could probably just stand over it. Even in the Gospel of John, in the first chapter we see Nathaniel. Mocking this idea that the Messiah could come from Nazareth, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So it appears that by that time, calling someone a Nazarene was a derogatory label to say, he's nobody. He comes from that nowhere town, nowhere village that means nothing, it's insignificant, unimportant. Even the name, how Nazareth got its name, seems to come from the root Word for a little seedling or a shoot or a branch that's coming up out of the ground. Just this little insignificant plant that really has no bearing on the land around it. And Isaiah used that very word after he predicted that Israel was going to one day, because of their disobedience, be wiped out. A king was going to come and destroy them, lay bare their towns and their fields and leave nothing but smoldering stumps of former glory. And then in Isaiah 11, verse 1, he says, but one day, a little root is going to give off a branch, a shoot, a little netzer would rise from the ashes and become the mighty redeemer in all of Israel. Jesus is that stump growing out of Israel's unfaithfulness. Out of nothing, out of nowhere, would suddenly come this mighty Redeemer. He's the righteous branch that would restore righteousness to his people. He didn't come as a conquering king that everyone expected. He came as a nobody in order to redeem nobodies like us. We're just regular people as I felt overwhelmed even to the start of this message. Who are we? that we would receive such wonderful blessings. In the grand scream of the world, we're nothing. The world's not going to remember us. There's not going to be any monuments to Adam Holman's great preaching. We're going to leave very little mark on this world. And for many of us, it seems like we're kind of leaving a big dent in the world with all the suffering, with all the sin that characterizes our lives, so much pain we experience and sorrow, who are we that God would even want to redeem us? But Jesus being called a Nazarene shows that we are exactly the kind of people that He came to save. He left behind His glory in heaven to become a nobody from nowhere and take us nobodies back with Him up into glory. At first glance, it seems like all of these Old Testament prophecies are just inconsequential. Just little markers to say, yeah, that's about Jesus, that's about Jesus. But it's more than that. It's about us too. It's about the faithful Son of God who came to make all those who trust in Him faithful children of God. It's about the Redeemer come to rescue all of us from all the chaos and suffering in our lives. He's the branch come out of nowhere to take all of us insignificant people with him. We can be certain that God keeps his promises, even if it doesn't always feel like he is working to keep his promises. Some of these Old Testament references kind of seem to contradict one another. All these prophecies confused many Jews How how could they all possibly fit together in one man? This doesn't make any sense. How could the Messiah come and usher in this eternal reign of glory and joy, but also die and suffer brutally? How could He be a humble man of peace and come and wipe out all of His enemies? How could He avoid the curse of Adam's sin to remain righteous how could he be born in Bethlehem and be called the Nazarene? How could he avoid the curse of his great, great, great grandfather kings? Some people, seeing all these problems, seeing their life falling apart all around them, just gave up. How can I trust in a God who's not at work? How can you trust in a God who allows so much suffering? How can you trust in a God that has right so many contradictions in his word? Some people contrived instead. They wanted to remain faithful. They liked the idea of God. So they adjust the prophecies a little bit. There's this two Messiah theories that some of these prophecies will be fulfilled by one guy and these prophecies will be fulfilled by another. Trying to adjust them to fit their idea in order so that they can remain faithful to that kind of God. But we can see here that God always keeps his promises just. As he made them, even when it hurts and doesn't always make sense, he keeps his promises even if it flips our world upside down. If he can tie together all of these crazy prophecies into one man, verifiable in history, we know that he can keep his promises to us as well. What kind of things does he promise us as his people? He's going to care for our needs. He'll supply everything we need. He'll help us overcome sin and temptation. He'll remove our fears and replace it with great comfort. He'll restore broken relationships and even add to our families. He'll guide us with wisdom along the righteous path until Jesus comes back one day and finally gives us the eternal life He promises, wiping away every tear, taking away every Bit of suffering we experience. It might not seem for many of you like God is keeping His promises in your life right now. You wrestle with desires that are skewed. Your husband left you. You're suddenly responsible to raise your grandchildren. You weep over the inability to have your own children. You lost family members so sadly taken away from you. It doesn't feel like God is keeping His promises right now. But it didn't seem that way for Israel either when Jesus came. It didn't seem like, that, like He was keeping His promises when He wiped out all the little boys in Bethlehem. It didn't seem like He was doing that for Joseph and Mary, sending them off to Egypt. But in this child, God is keeping all of His promises to bring a Redeemer who would one day be the most righteous man, the only righteous man who ever lived, suffer on a cross for all of our unrighteousness and rise from the dead, giving that righteousness to us. Bringing us eternal joy, promises of life everlasting And the only thing left for us to do is believe it. Trust it. Trust that God is working all things together for our good, even when it doesn't make sense. What does that look like? Let me just finish with one last look to the text. Notice in verse 13 what the angel says to Joseph. Four things. Rise. Take the child and his mother. Flee to Egypt and remain there. And then look at verses 14 and 15 and see how Joseph responded. He rose. He took the child and his mother. He departed to Egypt and he remained there. We don't know what he did while he was there. Just lived life with his family. Took care of his family. And then again for the return trip to Israel, look at what the angel says in verse 20. Three things. Rise. Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. And look at verse 21 and see Joseph's response. He rose, he took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. This is faith. When everything all around you is falling apart, it's crumbling everywhere, you are full of fear. Rise. Take those in your care with you and go where God leads. Just do the next thing. God didn't unfold the entire plan to Joseph. He just said, go here. And Joseph went. And he's not going to unfold the entire plan for your life either. He just says, be faithful to those in your care. Take care of them. Just rise each day and do what God has placed right in front of you. And in that simple, ordinary Faithful obedience. He's going to turn all of your suffering into a glorious crown of eternal life in Christ. Let's pray together. God, that's hard for many of us to hear. Just believe. Just do the next thing. What is the next thing for many of us? We can learn the next thing just by looking at Jesus. This humble king who came to give himself in love for us. This nobody from nowhere who came to save us. The one who came to wipe out Rachel's tears in ours. The, The faithful son come out of Egypt to make us faithful. Help us, God, to know the next step to take. Light our path with your word and with all these people around us so we may see what next steps we must take. And may this body be a group of people to walk with us when our legs are weak. God, reveal to us our next steps. For some of us, that means repent and surrender our lives to Christ for the first time. Others, it means join this body in fellowship that they would help me take those next steps. God, help us to be vulnerable, to share with one another our fears that you could pour out through the gifts of this body, encouragement, empowerment, to take the next steps, to be faithful, to proclaim hope in Christ through the chaos of this world, trusting that you, God, are faithful and you will keep your promises. And God, do we ever long for that day when Jesus comes. God, I pray even right now that before I say amen to this prayer, that moment would come. That Jesus would return and make all things new and take away all the suffering. But in your patience, you have delayed another day. Because in your great patience, you are waiting for more to repent to come to you so that they can enjoy eternal life and avoid the judgment to come. So please, God, stir hearts. Stir more hearts and draw them in to righteousness and faith in Christ that you would be glorified and we would receive joy forever. Amen.